I'm Sophie. And I'm Indy. And we are Diva Download. What do you reckon? No, no, I think it's far too cheesy. <sighs> Listeners, uh, please bear with us while we figure out our opener. <laughs> or send us the suggestion at divadownload at hotmail.com. We're very excited to welcome our next guest, the fabulous British tenor David Butt Phillip. Tell me more. David was a member of the Yetta Parker Young Artist Programme at the Royal Opera House. Ooh, tell me more. Interestingly, he trained as a baritone, but then retrained as a tenor after performing for Glyndebourne. He has now sung solo for companies like English National Opera, Opera North, Glyndebourne, Opera Holland Park, and Deutsche Oper Berlin. More! He sang Grigory in Boris Godunov at the Royal Opera House in 2016, which The Guardian described as stinkingly well sung. <laughs> that is an excellent review. Yeah, I bet you it's not on his website. David Buttphillip, tenor, stinkingly well sung, The Guardian. So, before we begin the interview proper, here are some out-of-context quotes. I stumbled down stage and grabbed hold of this chair for support and then threw it out of the way behind me while everyone else on stage stared at me wondering what the hell I was doing. I will never ever complain about my job ever again because I have seen the dark side. <laughs> David, we're so happy to welcome you to Diva Download. Would you begin by sharing with us one of your favourite stories from your time on stage? Sure. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of uh, weird stuff happens when you're on stage and obviously the idea is that 99% of the time nobody notices it. I suppose off the top of my head I can think of an example where I was on stage in a performance of Hamlet at Glyndebourne as the character Laertes and feeling very emotional and uh, engaged as I'd just been told that my sister had killed herself. And I noticed out to the corner of my eye the stage manager at Glyndebourne, Stephen Cowan, lying on the floor in the wing right in the corner of the proscenium arch at the very very downstage point lying flat on the floor and waving at me and and I caught him out of the corner of my eye whilst singing and looked straight at him and saw him gesticulating wildly at this chair that was sitting right under the line of the curtain and it took me about two seconds to work out what was going on while I continued performing and during this time I realized that the curtain couldn't come in unless I moved this chair and so I had to sort of change my blocking so that I stumbled downstage and grabbed hold of this chair for support and then threw it out of the way behind me while everyone else on stage stared at me wondering what the hell I was doing um, but of course as is the whole point of such a situation no one in the audience had the faintest idea that anything had even gone wrong because you know because I'm just such a professional. <laughs> but that sort of stuff happens all the time. But obviously the point is, you know, the show must go on. Thinking on your feet is a hugely important skill in this business because in, as we all know, in live theatre and in live music, things will and do go wrong. And that's not necessarily a problem as long as you react to it in the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. You can imagine your uh, like castmates on the stage thinking you're just getting so into the character and you're really so distraught, you've forgotten the blocking and, and, all, and all the rest. I mean, I hope that's what people thought. Yeah, <laughs> and not that I was going insane. But, yeah. Speaking of distractions, can you tell us how you're spending lockdown at the moment? Ha. 
Well, I'm basically by looking after the two small children um, and attempting to stop them from destroying the house and my mental well-being. Um, <laughs> but other than that, no, it's, it's been great to spend some unexpected extended time with my family. That's been wonderful, obviously. Um, but it is looking after a, a toddler and a, an eight-month-old is basically a full-time job for two people. So in all honesty, I haven't been doing very much else. We have made quite a lot of sourdough in a sort of cliched way. It's <laughs> um, just you. What else have we done? We've done, we've done? We have done more cooking than usual, which is nice. And we have caught up on a couple of drama series that, and box sets that we've been meaning to watch for ages that everyone always goes on about that we've never got around to watching. Uh, so that's been quite nice. Great. Have you been listening to any good music? Uh, being a massive choral music nerd, I have been getting involved on Twitter with, I don't know if you're aware of this, Choral Evensong World Cup that has been <laughs> organised on Twitter. Um, so they, it started a couple of months ago now. Uh, what's the guy's name that runs it? Patrick Allies, is that his name? I think. Um, anyway, he started a couple of months ago, he started on Twitter, a sort of, for fun, a poll of the best Magnificats and Nunc Dimittises. And that was a lot of fun because I would sort of make a point as I was going for a walk each day of listening to the ones that were on the poll that day and sort of reminding myself of them and deciding which I like best and then making a case for it. Um, so that was kind of a useful diversion. And I mean, I listen to quite a lot of popular and electronic music as well when I'm out walking by myself, but then that doesn't happen very much at the moment. So. And related to your nerdy choral background, self-confessed nerdy choral background, it's quite like a number of English singers. Do you find it helped or hindered your opera career? Hmm. Oh, massively helped, obviously. I mean, I know what you mean, but there's, I mean, this simple fact is that there is no way that I would be doing this for a living now if I hadn't been a cathedral chorister when I was a kid. A, it was how I got into appreciating classical music, and B, it was how I got into being obsessed with singing. So there's no way that I would be doing this now if I hadn't done that, because having done that, I then sort of uh, was away from classical music for quite a while in my teens and was in a lot of rock bands and the occasional musical and then when I was at university I sort of stumbled back into choral music almost by accident really and ended up as a choral scholar at Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral just for a bit of extra cash really. Then when I dropped out of university I had nothing really left apart from choral music <laughs> and somebody from there suggested that I consider applying to conservatoire which had never this was when I was 21 and I can honestly say that at the point that that was suggested to me it had never once for one second occurred to me that I might be a good enough singer to do it professionally and so for that reason, I applied to a conservatoire and got in, and the rest is basically history. So it's really only thanks to choral music that I am an opera singer. Am I right in saying that you actually start as a, as a bass in the choir? So I, I've, I've gone up and down and up and down. I used to sing tenor in choirs. I, I was a tenor in Liverpool, and then I, I was having lessons, an occasional lesson at the time, and decided that the baritone repertoire suited me better so I applied to college as a baritone and then I did so I did six years at, at music college as a baritone and then 
uh, worked professionally as a bass, uh, well, baritone choral singer for a bit, and then was in the Glyndebourne Chorus as a baritone. And then when I was 30, um, I started to notice that my voice had changed or was changing quite a lot and decided to go back up to tenor. Uh, and that was sort of the start of my sort of proper solo career, I guess. Can you tell us a bit about your change in Fach from baritone to tenor? Because it's quite a thing for a singer to spend, you know, yeah. a amount of years, yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, I'd spent six years training in thousands and thousands of pounds as a baritone. And then I had also established a career as a baritone, albeit at a, you know, perhaps a relatively low level, just doing bits and bobs of uh, freelance choral stuff around London, the occasional oratorio here and there. And then I got into the Glyndebourne Chorus. And at the, that point, it felt like a huge risk because I had stable employment as a baritone and to potentially give all that up was a huge risk. But Glyndebourne, to whom I will ever be uh, indebted, basically took that risk away by saying to me that if I wanted to make the change to tenor, they would have me back in the chorus the following year as a tenor. So I didn't have to worry about not having my job anymore, which was the only thing that was stopping me from doing it. So really, they made it a no-brainer and encouraged me to take that risk. And then from there, so I went back and did another year in the chorus as a tenor. And then they sent me to the National Opera Studio. And from there, I got onto the Yetta Parker at Covent Garden and so on and so on. But it all started with that, really. A friend of mine who's made a similar change from baritone to tenor has asked whether you would explain what you prefer about being a tenor than being a baritone. Well, I mean, that's a it, that's sort of easy question to answer in a way, because it's not really about being a tenor or being a baritone. It's about whether it's artistically rewarding. And in my case, I never sang lead roles with proper companies as a baritone. Uh, other people have, do have done so. So a good friend of mine, Irish bar uh, tenor called Gavin Ring, he was a baritone for a long time. It's a bit different for him because he had a reasonably high level career as a baritone so he was singing principal roles with companies like opera north as a baritone and i never did anything like that the best i ever got as a baritone was being in the glyndebourne chorus which was great but singing lead roles with major companies is way more uh, rewarding for me personally than being in the chorus not that i minded being in the chorus i would have been happy being in the chorus for a long time to be honest because i enjoyed the sort of camaraderie of it and working at a high, the opportunity to work at a, a high level like glamborne as well was amazing but for me singing like singing lead roles with major international companies is an incredible thrill and i never got to do that as a baritone so obviously i prefer being a tenor and you've also made a change of repertoire, so from Italian to German and, and more Slavic operas, and that's really like shot you into the stratospheres. Uh, why sure. did you do that? And uh, can you explain to us what the difference is for you? Well, again, it was half accident and half deliberate choice and strategy. Um, I was started out after I left the Young Artists Programme, I started out being mainly hired to sing Puccini which I adore. It's the first kind of opera that I really got into. So I was very happy doing that. And the level that I was doing it at was fun. ETO, Opera North, ENO, that sort of stuff. And so from there, I wanted to try and make the leap to having an international career. 
so I started auditioning. My agent started sending me to audition in Germany mainly, but also other European countries. And as I went round major grown-up opera houses, singing things like Rodolfo and Alfredo, I started to get the same feedback over and over again from casting directors and intendants who were very experienced. And they all, particularly in Germany, they I was told pretty bluntly, we really like your voice, but we would never cast you in Italian repertoire um, because your the color of your voice is too dark. Um, uh, they basically, I, I never realized this until I went abroad. Although I realized it's a little bit at the Opera House where I covered Alfredo and Rodolfo, for example, and watching the people who I was covering did make me realize that I didn't have the same, the same uh, sound to my voice as they did. I didn't sound like they did. And I also didn't look like they did. Um, and it, it, it became apparent to me that what these big houses in Germany were looking for in a Rodolfo or an Alfredo was, you know, a, a Joseph Kaleja or Vittorio Grigolo or, or a clone of them. One of those type of people, a certain uh, Latin, florid, bright sound. And with that, to be honest, a certain Latin look. In fact, one house in Germany told me almost, almost in these words that they would never hire a Brit to sing Italian repertoire. Um, uh, because it, they, it just would never occur to them because they would always hire Italians, South Americans, you know, East Europeans, perhaps, um, that sort of thing. But it was just not considered that British people sang Italian repertoire. But most of the time it was a question of, of vocal colour. And several casting directors said to me, we, really, we like your singing so much that if you go away and come back again with Wagner, Strauss, Janacek, uh, Tchaikovsky, we will immediately hire you. Basically, they said that to me. And so I did that. Um, in consultation with my agent and my singing teacher and coaches, obviously. I also used to get a lot of feedback that I, my sound was too heroic. So, for example, when I used to audition with Tamino, people, people would say, oh, it's great, and you're clearly very comfortable in German, but it just sounds a bit too heroic. And coaches and conductors would say that to me all the time. And so I thought, well, why don't I start singing repertoire in which you're meant to sound heroic? <laughs> Um, because that clearly is what's coming across even when I'm trying to sing lyrically. Um, so I started singing repertoire where being heroic is, is a, a bonus rather than a negative. And as soon as I started doing that, I started getting job offers that were completely beyond anything I had ever dreamed of before. Um, and it was immediately obvious that something was clicking. So it was partly my decision and partly not my decision. Um, it was I was nudged in that direction by important people, but then I, I took a strategic decision after that. For those sort of roles, you need your money notes to be so secure. Um, for in Dietzwerg, for example, you basically sang like nonstop for an hour with we've done our research, 25 top B flats and two top B naturals. Um, I think that's have, right. Yeah. Have your money notes be, always been so reliable or is that something you've really worked on? I mean, I suppose the short answer is yes. It, it depends what you mean by money notes. So for me, as a, as a sort of young Heldentenner, 
B flat is the real money note. Um, anything above that is extreme in my repertoire. So, I mean, obviously I have a C and I've done, what, 50 performances of Bohem where you have to have a C and another 20 of Butterfly where you pretty much have to have a C, but it's only one a night, basically. Um, I don't do repertoire which requires lots of singing in that extreme top. Um, but what I am comfortable doing is sitting around the GAB flat region basically all night, um, which is what you have to do in these, not, not in Wagner, but in these, um, these late 19th, early 20th century German roles, particularly Strauss. Um, so Bacchus, for example, in, in Ariadne is, is 25 minutes of singing and almost all of it is GAB flat. Um, and so, and Florestan is another good example as well. It sits in that high place the whole time. There's nothing above a B flat in the whole role, but it just sits at the very top of that tessitura the whole time. And that, as it turns out, is something that I'm quite comfortable with. Yeah, the B flats in Sverg are no problem at all. I can do that all night. Um, the difficult thing in Sverg specifically is the orchestration, which is enormous. Um, so it's not really about having the notes it's about um stamina and not pushing over the top of an enormous orchestra and having a very friendly conductor to hold that enormous orchestra back in the places where where that's necessary um, that is an incredibly challenging role and certainly in terms of pure vocalism it's the most challenging thing i've ever done but also the most fun thing i've ever done because it's it's a real uh, tour de force and virtuoso piece because you really hold the whole piece on your shoulders. It's amazing. Mm. And talking of Florestan, which you very recently uh, stepped in for, for Jonas Kaufmann uh, in Fidelio at the Royal Opera House. Can you tell us what it was like? How last minute was it that you got the call? Well, uh, I was quite lucky in a sense. Um, I was initially contacted just the day before the dress rehearsal to say that there was a possibility that Jonas wasn't going to sing the dress rehearsal and would I potentially be available and I said no because I had a performance of Carmen at ENO that night so I went to watch the dress rehearsal and then they did put me on standby for a couple of the earlier shows I had one day of rehearsal after the dress rehearsal, I had one day of rehearsal with the, well, day, half a day, really, with the director and the conductor. I was in the very fortunate position that I knew the director and the conductor really quite well and had worked with both of them before. So we very quickly sketched through the blocking for the whole piece in the space of about three hours. That was the day before the premiere. Then he decided at very short notice that he would do the premiere. Uh, which I always thought was likely. And then he did the next performance as well. And then I thought, oh, well, it's probably not going to happen now. And I think it was the fourth performance in the end that they called me the evening before and said, he's definitely not doing the performance tomorrow. So I did have a full 24 hours notice of the actual the first performance that I was doing I had 24 hours notice which was great because it means you can just psychologically prepare yourself obviously and um, I was very lucky that so I mean I'd only had 
three hours to walk through the blocking. But I was very lucky that I had just done the role in Prague about six weeks previously. Um, I'd done four performances of it. So I, it was right in the front of my mind. I didn't have to think even really for a second about remembering the words or remembering the music. Um, it, I just had to sort of flick the autopilot switch and that was all there. So then all I had to think about was the staging, which actually wasn't very complicated really. Um, so yeah, and then I was on. And the first show that I did, I have to admit, was a bit of a blur. Um, because obviously you're trying very hard to concentrate on not being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Basically, that's all you're trying to concentrate on. And also not making a musical mistake, but I just kind of le left that to autopilot. The second show that I did four days later, that was really fun. That was genuinely quite enjoyable because I felt by that point that I knew what I was doing and I'd done a decent job the first time and I could just enjoy myself a bit which I did. I really did enjoy that second one. And that's the one that they've got recorded that's going to be broadcast, I think, on BBC Four next month. Great. Do you have a particular way of getting into character or is it just you sort of step onto the stage and then you're there? You mean for an actual performance? Yeah. Um, no, not particularly. Um, I find that, well, it depends on the piece, obviously, but I do, I find generally that the music and the atmosphere on stage and the rehearsal process obviously gives you the tools to immediately be present and flick that switch i don't i don't do uh you know mentally getting into character in the dressing room or anything no i, I don't find that necessary or helpful um as a performer that's what the rehearsal process is for that's what your conversations with the director are for um so that you are then in a place where you can put the costume on, walk on stage, and it's all just there. And with all the directors that you've now worked with around the world, do you have a favourite type that gets the best out of you? Um, I'm not sure a type, but there are certainly directors who are good at getting the best out of you are the best directors. So the directors who, instead of telling you what to do or telling you even worse telling you what not to do um that's the worst kind um the ones who draw out of you with their personality and with their communication skills and their understanding of the character something that is already nascent within you that they can work with and the very best example of this as someone that I've worked with a couple of times is David McVicker, who is um, an extraordinary, uh, has an extraordinary talent for harnessing the natural energy of the performers that he's working with and focusing it in a way that suits his vision. And like, like all sort of great leaders in any profession or in any situation, he sort of makes you feel like you're invested in what is primarily his vision. So he draws, a great conductor is exactly the same, Tony Papano, for example, is exactly the same. He, he makes, it's not that he tells you how to be, how to improve your artistry, it's that he makes you improve your own artistry by being there with him. So he draws that, that performance from you. And I, I do feel like with people like David McVicker and Tony Papano that when you are in a rehearsal room with those people, you, I, I feel like I become better at my job every minute that I'm working with someone like that. 
and that is the 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 fuel that drives me on in this profession is is that sense of constantly improving your artistry by working with the very best people and so ends part one of our interview with david but philip as always tune in to part two to hear more of the lovely david <laughs>